Well, we have an assortment of interesting questions to deal with here today. Um, and uh, let's see. I think it's been working for me to answer the questions of the people that are actually here first. And uh, that way, if we don't get through them all, that uh, uh, maybe the people who aren't here will be able to be here when if we need to do a catch-up. So uh, I'm going to, that's what, what I'll do here. And uh, so I might need to check with you to see whether uh, whether you, you have a question. And now, Michelle, you have a couple of questions, I know. So, and yours is the first. So we'll begin there, okay? All right. Um, <clears throat> so, Michelle, what you've asked is, you said, in meditation, it occurred to, to me the degree to which guilt creates a strong attachment to self. Well, that's right. That's what, that's what guilt is about. <laughs> Any means to resolve the guilt by way of apology or confession is an extremely selfish act. Although it can be appropriate, it is not necessarily for the other person. It is more about desiring to have things be different, to not feel badly, etc., Yes, that sure can be true, yes. Intellectually, I can see that guilt will only fade away when it is seen through, and the circumstances are allowed to be just as they occurred. Can you offer any suggestions on how to work with guilt as an aspect of craving and desire and its inherent means of clinging to self? And yes, that would be... That's it. So you're absolutely right about guilt being um, a, a very self-centered emotion and uh, a much more healthy emotion would be regret or even remorse as long as we don't think of the term remorse as being a synonym for guilt. If we treat remorse as uh, a genuine uh, regret for uh, what we did, accompanied by a desire to make things right again. So, uh, yeah, to apologize when you're just doing it to make yourself feel better is, well, it's, it's better than doing nothing. <laughs> but... It's not really doing much to change the problem. Uh, it would be much, much better if your apology were in order to make the other person feel better. And that's, that's what you would like to do. So you, the important thing is to recognize guilt. And when the guilt is present, and you are recognizing the selfish nature of guilt and that uh, whatever you do in response to that guilt will probably be mixed. That it's partly to make you feel better and it's partly to make the other person feel better. 
Now, as long as it's just to make two people feel better, there's nothing wrong with that. The only part of it is the desire to make yourself feel better. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel better, right? But to if when that becomes the primary motivation, then it's not nearly as effective for you as if it were coming from a genuine place of concern for the other and compassion for yourself rather than craving or desire. So what you're really asking is uh, how can we change guilt into a more wholesome uh, feeling like regret or that kind of remorse, which is really wishing we hadn't done that because of the harm that it did. Now, I think one of the things that creates an obstacle here is that you might tend in your mind not to accept where you are, but where you are in terms of your own personal, spiritual, and meditative development is it's what is, and accept that, and acknowledge that. So acknowledge that you're experiencing guilt, and acknowledge that your guilt is probably due to causes and conditions. I mean, maybe you were raised in the Catholic Church, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's uh, the guilt you feel is due to causes and conditions, what your aspiration is, is to uh, create the causes and conditions for feeling compassion, regret, remorse for your actions, so that it is not self-centered emotion uh, that's causing you to act out of craving instead of out of compassion. So go ahead, acknowledge it, accept it. Okay, I'm going to be feeling guilty until I get over feeling guilty. But in the meantime, that doesn't prevent me from feeling compassion, having empathy for how I've hurt somebody else. And that doesn't prevent me from feeling regret. Right? And that doesn't, that doesn't, that takes absolutely nothing away from the fact that you're recognizing that uh, that guilt is uh, unwholesome, but only in the sense that it's self-centered. It's uh, it does have the wholesome aspect that at least motivates you to act in an appropriate way. So give it credit for that, but at the same time. See if you can't get in touch with where that guilt is coming from. And maybe over time, if you just, whenever that happens, you reflect on it, uh, it will start to become more and more clear. And if you're practicing, uh, really stage four is probably a place where uh, there's a very good chance that the uh, sources of that guilt will come to the surface. 
but they might come to the surface just by bringing mindfulness to any situation which causes guilt to arise. And being mindful of what is this feeling of guilt? It, it, it just hurts me. And uh, it, uh, you know, it doesn't serve any good purpose other than that of motivating me to help the other person feel better. So that's what I would suggest that you do. Is that helpful? Yes, it is helpful. And I think maybe I was a little bit um, confused where it is more remorse than guilt, mm -hmm. but guilt was the first word that came up. Yeah. Um, and just ways, um, I just find, I find it as a pattern. Mm -hmm. um, friends have told me I'd make a great Catholic. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, but, but I find that that, that is a place where I, I, I cling to the self as I'm reaching greater clarity and awareness. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely became, become a hindrance and I kind of find it kind of linked into doubt, like doubting where I am in the path, like mm -hmm. given those circumstances, am I really, um, capable and and that's not even a good word of of encompassing everything i mean things over the past couple of weeks have become increasingly empty um and so i'm finding that emptiness a little challenging to integrate into daily occurrences now that was a later question that you asked yeah about the yeah and it's and so I kind of feel like I'm moving past the guilt and the remorse and the, that the emptiness is what's showing up. So, well, that's good that you're feeling past the guilt mm -hmm. and uh, the unhealthy interpretation of remorse. And I assume, I hope it's the case, that what's arising instead is compassion? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Now, what do you mean by emptiness? There's so many different things that people mean by emptiness. Um really seeing through um, that there's really no substance necessarily to anything that comes about in daily activity or engagements or thoughts and languaging um, and how to hold that given that I'm in the society where everything means so much um, on, on many different levels. So even like engaging with clients, you can see through what they're experiencing, but but it's very real to them. Um, and, and it's kind of like bridging the gap, so to speak. And it's not just with clients, it's with family. It's with interactions that you watch in the grocery store. Um, even the other day, walk, doing a walking meditation, it became very clear um, Everything that I experienced as a sensation was a reflection of myself. And in the instant that I recognized that, um, it all disappeared. Disappeared? Yeah, disappeared as um, like an outer object. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now that's... Uh 
that can be a very positive experience. Mm -hmm. That can be uh, an, an insight experience. Yes. Um, but um, <clears throat> what you have to, okay, you're experiencing sensations, right? Mm -hmm. Now, whatever the mental construct is that arises in your mind as a result of those sensations, whatever the perception is, doesn't matter what it is, you look at something and you perceive it as a car. Mm -hmm. That perception is, it's, you're recognizing that it's empty. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's empty in the sense that whatever is producing the sensations from which you construct carness is not really accurately being represented. Yes. Right. But you recognize that there really is something outside of your mind that is responsible for the sensations arising, the sensations of the color of the car and the mm -hmm. shape of the car and everything else. Okay. So now being able to look at something and say, well, you know, in, in terms of not getting run over and in terms of being able to drive to the store and stuff, it's very useful that my mind can create this construct from these sensations. But I know that there is a much greater truth there beyond this and that this is all just being created by, by my mind. Yes. And mind. So that's the experience you're having. So what's wrong with that? Um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but I'm, I, I, I kind of go through these phases where things just seem, I don't know, unfulfilling, dead. <laughs> you know, when you, when you start to see through them, your experience of them is very different. Um, and I'm finding that even challenging in different relationships where I don't, um, my construct of the world is very different than theirs. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult to even have a conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, everyone's internal representation of the world is different. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that's a fact. But nevertheless, um, all of these different representations are attempts by different minds mm -hmm. to, uh, to create something that is functionally useful that allows us to that you're in a relationship with somebody and you see that they're suffering mm -hmm. right yep and uh, suffering is real yes um you know it, it's as real as as anything else but um the cause of the suffering may not be what they think it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, does not, if, if there is, well, there's, there's a possibility that you could do something to alleviate someone else's suffering, mm -hmm. but there's also the possibility there's really nothing you could do. Right. Right? Yes. So, then you have two options. One, <clears throat> if you are able to 
make the distinction between these two, mm-hmm. then you can take the action which will be helpful to another person. Yes. Would that not be meaningful? No, yes, that, that would be meaningful. Um, and if you recognize that there's absolutely nothing that you could do to help them, and you accept that, mm-hmm. and you accept that whatever this greater reality is that lies behind this world of appearances, there is some reason why this situation exists. Right. And you can accept it. And that's, that's wisdom. Yes, and, and I think that's part of it too, is just seeing that everything's just playing out and there is no control over any circumstance other than like a response, whether there's a way to alleviate suffering or not. Um, yeah, I just, <clears throat> it's just been a little challenging these days, especially when you go into sits and there's complete phys- instantaneous physical pliancy, you're, everything's expanding and in every direction, there's, there's no sense of a me when mm-hmm. I sit and that's becoming more apparent when I'm engaged in the world. And so it's just a new way of navigating, I think, as well. And you notice that, that there's really nothing missing, that the me was not really contributing anything anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the only thing that the me would contribute if it was there, would it would probably stir up feelings of, uh, wanting something that isn't happening or clinging to something that is happening or something like that. So it's something that's totally unnecessary and it's gone anyway. Do you feel a sense of relief in that? Um, yes, I feel a sense of relief most times and sometimes I feel a little bit of overwhelm um, in, I think... It's not just in the letting go. It's like how to completely and fully surrender to it. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> the path to completely and fully surrendering to that means that you have to, I mean, your mind is a very complex system. And the sense, the, the felt sense of being a separate self is very, very primal. Mm-hmm. Comes very ancient part of your brain and it's become projected into your consciousness as sort of a background assumption which for too often too long has been affecting your behavior Mm -hmm. now it is possible to get to the place where that sense of self disappears and that is one of the uh, five fetters that falls away with the fourth path Mm-hmm. But up there, you've got to work your way through the first three paths. And so, um, with the first path, you recognize that the self is an illusion, even though you still feel it. Mm-hmm. And ego self becomes much more transparent and yes. you become less reactive and all this other good stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, as that develops, then uh, remember the, the origins, well, 
the origin of suffering is craving. It's wanting things to be different than they are. It's resistance to what is. Mm -hmm. And that craving arises out of self-clinging. Okay? Yes. And these two are reinforcing each other. That craving, when it occurs, reinforces the sense of self. And actually the suffering that craving brings about also reinforces the sense of self. Mm -hmm. So these things are linked. So if we want to get to if we want to get to the root of this sense of self, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to work through uh, the dukkha and the tongue or craving, and then we get then as we get through that, then we get to be in a position where we can eliminate that sense of self. And so that's why this path is laid out the way it is. Now the work of first path <clears throat> is coming to realize how pervasive in very subtle ways suffering is, mm -hmm. is, and self-clinging is. And there are a variety of different ways that this can come to fruition. But what it will be, what it will eventually take the form of is a profound insight into the first three noble truths. And your experience of that is going to be, Mara, I have seen you. I know who you are. You'll never trick me again. Because on First Path, you've been discovering subtle forms of craving. You've been realizing that Although at first it seemed that there was very little dukkha, um, now you realize there's much more than, than you thought there was, mm -hmm. and you realize that this is all coming out of self-cleaning. <clears throat> and it's when you come to the point where this becomes, wow, I get it now. Mm -hmm. Wow. <clears throat> Anytime there's any dukkha at all, that means that there's craving and self-cleaning. Yes. Only truly satisfactory states of mind that I've ever experienced have been those in which there was no craving mm -hmm. and therefore no dissatisfaction. And you might, it might also take the form of recognizing that, wow, even, even knowing what I know, I still realize that so much of everything that I do and think and feel is still coming from this residue of self-clinging that is yes. there. Now, when you have that powerful insight into the first three noble truths, what's going to happen is that craving is going to lose a lot of its power over you. And the work of second path is going to be overcoming craving for the things of the world. Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise, blame, fame, and obscurity. Right? Mm-hmm. You get rid of those, and then you move into third path. Um, and you have the, fall, the fetters of desire and aversion for things of the sense realm have fallen away. Now we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Okay. And so what you're going to find in third path is there still remains, uh, of course, the sense of self is still there. It's now because of the work you've done, the craving that it gives rise to is of a different sort, and the, uh, the dukkha that it gives rise to is of a different sort. It's of a subtler sort. Mm -hmm. And so 
without going into the details, there is this same work to do of stage three that overcomes this, what I call existential dukkha, which re reveals itself, you know. It is this, this resistance to what is that comes from the remaining self-clinging, and it is, why does the universe have to be the way it is? Why does the world have to have so much craving or uh, suffering? By this time, the insight into the interconnectedness of everything and a non-separateness of self has become strong enough that you realize that while you can trick yourself into being in a state where there seems to be no suffering, you're there. You're still suffering as long as there's suffering in the world because you're not separate separate from the world, yeah. right? Yes, very much you're so. Have to, so this is the path that it takes to get beyond this. It's to recognize the emptiness of this sense of self in a way that all the practice you've done causes your mind to work in a different way such that this sense of self no longer arises. Okay. And that's what's going to happen. So all you need to do is uh, there are practices that are appropriate to every path, and I won't try to conjecture about what path you're on or anything else like that in a Q&A forum like this, but that's what the process involves. You can't go after the sense of self directly because it is constantly, as long as there is craving, it's being reinforced. As long as there is suffering, it's being reinforced. So, so it is a, a cycle. It's, it's actually two interconnected closed loop cycles that are constantly supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And so you have, to, you have to take the end product and the source of that, and you have to work on them to dismantle those cycles. So that's how you do it. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. It, I, it, it's still, um, I, I see varying degrees of um, definitely less craving and desire, definitely less suffering. Um, and then like if I'm out and about, I'll go, hey, look at that. I just got really agitated. And then poof, it's gone. Um, yeah. yeah. So. And that's wonderful. And that's why this is so rewarding all along the way, because it is getting better. But it's also what keeps us motivated to keep going on the path as we see, okay, it's getting better, but there's still ways to go. This is, yes. there's, still, there's still dukkha there. It's still unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yes, yes very much. So rejoice in that. Okay, I will do that. Rejoice in that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Hope that helped. Um, let's see. Um, Karen, is Karen here? It would appear not. Okay. Then let's move on to, we'll, we'll come back to Karen's question if she shows up or, or in a uh, follow-up. Um, Bert, Bert Elsie, Bert, you're a regular. Are you here today? Or we caught you at a bad time. I guess the same goes for Bert as does uh, for, um, oops, let's close up. 
Okay. Andy, are you here? Yes, I am. Ah, good. Okay, great, Andy. All right. Uh, so, Andy, you've, you've asked, um, you say this is a repost of a question from a few months back. Oh, and if, uh, I guess we must have missed it on a follow-up or something, but uh, glad we got it now. Um, and I, uh, you are most welcome. I'm glad that TMI is of value to you. You say, I've been meditating for years intermittently and making no progress, but your book has given me a new understanding and really helped. I feel like I'm getting stuck on the first step of the gradual four-step transition to the meditation object. When I let my attention wander, and it's a quiet room, I pretty much slip into dullness, fall asleep without realizing it. I modified it to have some nature sounds like waves or birds singing in the background, and this works better as it gives me gives my peripheral awareness something tangible to be aware of. How important is the first step of the gradual four-step transition, and how do I tell when I can move on from step one to step two and so forth? Um, as you instructed, I really want to get the foundation down, so I'm willing to stick with it diligently. If this is a key step, any suggestions? <clears throat> okay, Andy, well, first of all, uh, what you have discovered is one of the advantages of meditating in an environment that isn't completely silent. I mean, I know some people who have built uh, uh, cubicles for themselves that are soundproof and completely dark and things like that, thinking that was going to help their meditation. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, and you find that it helps to create an artificial sense of sounds and things like that. What's the important thing about this four-step transition is it, it plays a number of roles. One of the things is that you're learning to clarify the distinction between attention and awareness. And another thing is you're learning to recognize much more clearly and perhaps gain a little bit of insight into how attention works, that it is under volitional control, that you can intentionally move it from one place to another, but it is not completely under intentional control, and that uh, uh, that spontaneous movements of attention are something that has become highly normal. That when we're task-oriented, then we intentionally direct attention. But most of the time, our attention is moving on its own, and it's in moving in a process. It's either attracted to something that is either uh, taken as being um, beneficial or harmful, in other words, an object of desire or aversion, or else it's in search of something that is potentially interesting in that sense. And so the context that we're putting this exercise of deliberately moving attention and then observing how attention spot, uh, functions spontaneously while at the same time practicing sustaining awareness. The context of this is in 
going through a series of stages where we simply narrow the scope of a field in which we allow attention to move, either intentionally or spontaneously, while training ourselves not to lose the awareness associated with the broader scope. So as to is this first step essential, I would say no, it's not. It is very beneficial for the majority of people because it's very natural. All you're really doing in this first step is secluding yourself from past and future thoughts or thoughts about things that are going on somewhere else that have nothing to do with the present. So bottom line, first step is just coming into the presence. Once you've come into the presence, if that presence is that really the only thing there is to be aware of is the sensations in your body, then, of course, that means that you don't have too much to work with. And dullness becomes very likely. Yeah. So just when you have that realization that there's not too many things I can direct attention to other than the sensations in my body, and there's not a whole lot for me to be aware of either, except that you can be aware of the absence of sounds. And there might be some occasional sounds. There might even be the sound associated with your breathing, things like that. But, but uh, when, you, when you realize that there's not, a, there's not a lot to work with in terms of attention and awareness, then yes, go to the body because the body's filled with sensations. And that's no problem at all. And I'm assuming, and you can tell me whether this is true or not, when you go to the second step, that dullness isn't a problem, and you can practice intentionally paying attention to different sensations, and you can practice just watching how attention moves spontaneously to whatever is a stronger or more unique or, you know, whatever sensation in your body has some greater appeal or interest. Uh, so am, am I correct in assuming that when you get to the second stage, you're okay? Yeah, um, I think I'm more used to feeling um, in my body or being in the, like uh, feeling the movements. Uh, um, I, I, I do some martial arts too. So mm -hmm. when I, you know, sometimes I have to practice very slowly. So, um, so when I, I do that or uh, or the walking meditation. I'm, I'm, when I'm feeling the body, I'm very comfortable with that part of it, and I enjoy that. Um, I find that that's often easier for me to do than um, trying to find the breath in my nose and then all the various sensations associated with that. Um, so that's one thing that you get to work up to in the third and fourth steps. So that's really great. So you're, you're solid in the second step. So just do the first step to the extent that you have the extraspective awareness that there's not much stimuli, there's not much in the way of stimuli in the environment to work with, either in terms of awareness or attention. But that absence is still something to be aware of. And then go ahead and move on to step two. But when you're in step two, you want to remain extrospectively aware 
even though there's not much content, because occasionally there might be some content, right? Might, occasionally there might be a noise. Occasionally there might be something that you smell, or things like that. You do want to hold the intention to have extrospective awareness in terms of, of the other senses when you move into stage two, but that's all you really need to do. You've already made yourself aware of the absence. You know there's nothing much to work with. So you just try to retain that extrospective awareness so that if anything does appear, you'll be aware of that too. If that's all you need to do, go ahead and go to step two. Now, because of your martial arts training and the tendency for your, your uh, attention to perhaps uh, uh, be to, to move more freely within your body um, and your awareness to be much more uh, body-centered. Now remember, both in step one and in step two, there's still introspective awareness. There's still thoughts arising. There's still feelings arising. One of the feelings that arises is impending dullness. Another feeling arise, uh, that arises is uh, whatever emotional reaction you might have to the fact that there's really nothing there for attention to explore. And be aware of those things. But when you're in stage two, then what you need to notice with attention and awareness is what are the major things that are, that are present in, in the body sensations. And of course, the most, the, the most evident sensations, you may feel your pulse, but generally it's not nearly as clear as the sensations related to the breath. The movement of the abdomen, the chest, shoulder muscles, the feelings at the nose, uh, the expansion and contraction of your, your, your abdomen and chest and so forth. And so that's the that's where we're going beyond what you're already used to in your martial arts practice. And so that's the new training that you're doing. And so you want to stay aware of the entire body. You're not going to change that, but now you're just going to limit the scope of attention a little more. And then when you get good at that, you're ready to move to, to stage four. So yes, um, there is there is some new learning associated with stages three and four or steps three and four, but uh, that's that's what you want. That's what you're looking for. You're looking. You're you're. They're just they're opportunities to explore both spontaneous and uh, and intentional movements of attention. They're opportunities to practice maintaining both extrospective and introspective awareness. Uh, uh, of everything, even while the scope of your attention is becoming more and more narrow. Does that help? Yes, um, thank you. Um, I was wondering if, um, so when I'm, main, uh, when I'm trying to maintain the peripheral awareness, and um, if, I, um, uh, if I get uh, startled, by the by some peripheral awareness noise or something like that mm -hmm. that's an indication then that the peripheral that i wasn't as that's not enough peripheral awareness is, is that uh, is that the fair to say 
Well, the, it's, the word enough is what makes it unfair to say. Mm -hmm. It is not enough. There, what it means is there's not as much peripheral awareness as there can potentially be, and that there later on will be. So at stage five, you're going to be working on having a level of alertness and a sufficiently powerful awareness that those startle responses disappear. But they're not a sign of not enough before you're practicing, you're actually doing stage five practice. So prior to that, what they're telling you is, oh, there was a bit of dullness. Well, there's, I haven't yet developed my uh, 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 power of my awareness to the degree that, that my, my mind was able to process the sound or the sensation, whatever it was, sufficiently before it produced the startle response. That's all it means. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. Let's see. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Michelle's second question, I think we've already answered. Uh, Gabrielle, is Gabrielle here? Yes, there you are. Yeah, hello. <laughs> Hi, good to see you. Okay. All right. Let's look at your question here. I have only recently noticed that when practicing stage four to six, I was blocking my thoughts. <clears throat> I did let them come, but not let them be. But I did not know that I was that I was doing. Uh, and it was very draining and a big source of anxiety. Um, attention without awareness puts too much feeling of control as I uh, have to do with everything. And this paradox is not nice. Yeah, I would agree with that, yes. Not to mention what people were saying. When this happened in practice, I thought I was re-engaging with the breath, but actually I think I was not. It only felt like so. I'm afraid that I need you to elaborate on this a little bit. In what sense did you think you were re-engaging with the breath, but now uh, you believe that you were not? It's really hard to say. It sounds like I was conflicting with two intentions, like one was to block and the other to stay with the breath, but I couldn't have two objects at the same time. Well, yeah, that's right. You, you were, your attention would have been... Uh, your attention would have been moving, and uh, yeah, uh, and what you is one of the things that <clears throat> is important to keep in mind is that when you try to suppress something, you're actually giving it more energy in which to resist that attempt. So um, it sounds to me like you've already recognized what problem is and maybe you just need a little bit of encouragement to act on that to when when those thoughts arise let them be uh, don't don't do anything about the thought the only thing 
to do something about is to reinforce that intention to actually be following the breath. And so what the easiest way to do that is, is to try to be aware of the different sensations that are occurring as a result of the breath. Bring more focus on the actual sensations, on what's there. And that will allow you to just let the thought be there. And it may, there may be a tension alternating with this. It may be a subtle distraction or it may even be a gross distraction. But that's all right. If it's a gross distraction, then you can try to deal with it just by following, connecting a little more closely and, and, until it uh, ceases to be a gross distraction. If it's a subtle distraction, you can just let it be there until you're actually in stage six. When you're at stage six, what you're doing is not suppressing, but ignoring. And if you've discovered that you're actively suppressing, then that's wonderful. That's really great. That's tremendous. That's a breakthrough. Aha, I see what I'm doing. Ah, I'm not going to, all right, I'm not going to keep making that mistake. I'm going to try to be aware of when I'm doing that. And when I, by being aware of it, now I can refocus my attention on, on the breath and I can just let it be there until it goes away by itself. Okay, so uh, let's see there's more to this. With that in mind, I started to allowing them to be there. That's good. It's what we just talked about. And the very first section doing it, session doing it was full of good feelings and also positive changes in daily life. Even though attention did not seem quite strong, and things are better overall. Well, that's good. So you, you figured it out. You've taken advantage of it. But regarding my practice, it seems that when allowing these thoughts, there are two intentions conflicting. It looks that to know what I am, that I am allowing and placing attention in them, so it conflicts with my intention to attend to the breath. So <clears throat> there's something about this. It's the... It's like the letting, letting be, letting go. Letting be is kind of like letting go. It's a non-doing. Um, uh, letting something be in awareness is, uh, yes, your sense of, I am the one doing this. But this is why it's, it's helpful, and uh, you might just want to review some of the things that we say in the earlier stages, because if you're in this stage five, stage six kind of area where this needs to be something that's already understood is that there is no I who is the, in charge of your mind. And that the, to the extent that you are still coming from a place of feeling like you are some kind of a self who has agency, the only agency that is realistic, and this should be obvious, uh, you, should, you should look at this until it becomes obvious, that the only thing that, that you can actually do is hold an intention to follow the breath more closely so that it doesn't alternate with something in the background. 
and that you just let that thing in the background take care of itself. You let it, let it come, and you let it be. You let go of any need to do anything about it. And then you just let it go by itself. You're not responsible. All you have to do is hold the attention, intention to pay attention to the breath. So that will, that will cut your job down from two things to one thing. And it will allow your mind to accomplish both tasks. Okay? Can you just, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, for sure. Okay, great. And you've already, you've already experienced this. You've already done this enough to have experienced it, uh, the positive uh, results that it produces. So you just need to keep, keep doing that and keep that in, in mind that, that all you can do in terms of doing is hold the intention to respond appropriately to whatever is happening uh, according to what is happening and according to the stage that you're practicing at. And so this is going to be continue to be true from now on, is that all you can do is hold the intention to follow the instructions. Okay? So, <clears throat> uh, if it, yeah, uh, you have difficulties with the faculty of, of awareness and attention, intention-wise, what would... I recommend to deal with this situation in practice. Um, are you still doing that four-step transition that we're talking about at the beginning of each uh, sit? Yes, although Good. it goes very fast. Okay, well, that's fine if it goes very fast, but to the degree that you're having any, any sense of difficulty of clearly distinguishing between attention and awareness and the fact that the only way that you can influence awareness is through the effect that your intentions have on attention, okay? Then this, then this is the great opportunity to do it. At the beginning of the sit, just do the four-step transition with the purpose in mind, have to be as clear as possible and to notice when attention is trying to do the job of awareness. If attention is trying to, to you know, you want to remain aware in step two of all of the sensations in your body, is your attention, when you're intentionally directing it to your foot, for example, is your attention trying to support awareness? And if it is, you just recognize that it's doing that, and you realize that it didn't need to do that. You just have the conscious experience that, well, I already knew that other sensation was there in awareness before my attention went to it, and when I bring my attention back to my foot, it's still there. So attention doesn't need to chase after objects of awareness anymore. So... Use that four-step transition and then go to whatever stage of practice that uh, uh, you would go to. But just take that opportunity at the beginning to tune in to the, the distinction and to be able to recognize, particularly to be aware of whenever attention is trying to do, in, uh, do awareness, the job of awareness. Okay? 
All right. Uh, you are telling me to to realize that before attention moved to the to the object, my awareness was already already there. Yeah, your awareness is something's already. The the thing is, uh, at some point, your mind's going to become clear enough that you're going to recognize this. It's impossible to pay something, pay attention to something, until after it's risen in the field of conscious awareness. Yeah. Okay. Awareness is primary. Attention is secondary. Attention is something that evolved later to isolate aspects of awareness and and zoom in on them. Yeah. Okay? So you it had to be an awareness or you could never have paid attention to it. All right. And when you if when your attention goes back, it will pass from awareness, but uh, eventually But most of the time, just moving your attention away from it by itself doesn't cause it to disappear from awareness. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, okay wonderful. Good. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. That I can help. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Jarda. Yes, I'm here. Ah. Okay. Hi, Jarda. All right. Let's see. Hi, Jarda. Hi. I'm practicing around stage six for some time, but seem to be struggling with metacognitive introspective awareness. While my plain old introspective awareness is relatively strong, and I'm aware of most of my thoughts before they have a chance to turn into gross distractions, it's still very much awareness of the content of my thoughts. I don't seem to be consistently able to be aware of just a thought arising without knowing its content, or indeed activities of mind in general. I'm trying to hold the intention to observe states and activities of my mind, but maybe I'm doing it wrong. Any tips on strengthening metacognitive introspective awareness? Is the intention key, or are there other tricks? Um, And so, as with, as with everything, intention is key. Now, in this particular situation, what is the intention? The intention is actually to have a more complete introspective awareness. And now, there's two things that determine how clearly you are, you perceive the content of those things that are in awareness. One of them is um, the, the power of awareness itself and the kind of objects. So an object that is really super familiar And that includes a thought, a thought that has just uh, been held repeatedly over and over and over again. When it arises in awareness, the content is going to be more evident in awareness than it would be if it were a more relatively novel thought. And I say relatively just because, you know, that... <clears throat> But do you see the distinction I'm making? 
in terms of if say a sound is uh, is present in awareness. Now, if you are used, and, and let's say it's the sound of a bird, if you are used to, to specifically paying attention to the sounds of birds, it's going to be more fully recognized in awareness. If you're somebody who has learned to distinguish between the sound of <clears throat> a cardinal as compared to the sound of a mockingbird, for example, or an oriole, then even that knowledge may be a part of your awareness. Okay? Now, and th in which case, it's not a problem, um, uh, and it's not contributing to a lack of metacognitive quality. Now, the other way that things stand out is, of course, if there is some alternating of atten alternating attention with the object and awareness. So that uh, that attention, if it's very, very brief, you may not be noticing yet at this stage. And it will uh, allow you to identify more precisely the content of, um, uh, of something that is in awareness. And at stage six, this is precisely what you want to be aware of so that you can hold the intention for alternating attention attention not to occur. Now here's where we get to the crux of it. Metacognitive introspective awareness is what is going to let you know that why something is standing out is because your attention is alternating with it. So you just the intention to know why why the objects of introspective awareness are clear is a way of knowing something about the state of your mind and the movements of attention. So, and <clears throat> you might even, if, if you followed what I was saying before about why some things are more clearly known in awareness than others, then, then you can be metacognitively aware that that is why content is something in awareness. But the real, the real intention is the intention to know as much as you can about what's going on in your mind as a whole. Okay? So it's knowing that hearing is occurring in awareness, not through attention, but knowing that hearing is occurring in awareness rather than knowing what you are hearing. It's knowing that feeling in your body is present in awareness. It's knowing that thoughts are still arising and passing away. It's knowing that there are mental states associated with that May the very that very thought may be the thought that well I don't have much metacognitive awareness right now. It's just knowing that that thought is arising and passing away, and that becomes more and more metacognitive on its own. The the more you expand awareness without diminishing 
the focus of your attention. And in stage six, the focus of your attention, your, uh, your attention is to be exclusive. So you're relying on awareness to inform you about the slightest movements of attention that are taking place, or the slightest tendency for your scope of attention to, to increase, to, to encompass more, and things like that. So holding that intention is what is actually going to res uh, result in increased metacognitive introspective awareness. At its root, it's not that different than um, back in stage three where you're trying to develop more introspective awareness, where um, the holding the intention to be aware of when the attention was alternating with something that was likely to cause you to forget. This is just an extension of that same process. You see that? Now the purpose behind the intention in stage three was to notice when something was getting enough attention to cause you to forget. The intention in stage four is to notice any movements of attention at all. And in order to do that, you need to have a broader, fuller, stronger awareness. Yeah, thank you. That answers my question, I think. It just felt like I am, I am at a stage six for a long time and it's not doing very much. Well, um, is, uh, there's a possibility that you may be holding yourself back. You may, uh, what is the reason, or what, well, yeah, why, what, what are you experiencing with your stage six practice? So what I am experiencing with my stage six practice, so I, I still get, uh, I still get super distractions. So I don't think I am holding myself back. So <clears throat> what's happening with my practice is basically I am, I am focused on the breath and then uh, some thought comes and I don't catch the thought at the moment where it starts appearing. I just see the thought as okay. I'm thinking, oh, now I should think what I'm going to have for lunch. So uh, it might be that you need to just regard these as gross distractions and uh, practice with them with more with that in mind it's still going to increase the, the power of your mindfulness, but uh, it may be that you manage to um, get past stage four without quite having uh, learned to identify those movements of attention as, as clearly as you potentially could. And, and now you're trying to do a, pr a practice that is showing you the limits of what you've done before. <laughs> But it's not that different. And so it's just applying the same principles to, to strengthen that and reinforce it. Are you using the body scan? And do you find that the body scan helps to keep attention focused? I am using, uh, I am using full body breathing, actually, at stage six. And so you use whole body breathing, yes. And, and it helps sometimes, but it doesn't always help. Okay. Um. <clears throat> well, what I would 
Um, when you say it helps sometimes, but it doesn't always help. Now, is it the case that when you start doing it, it helps, but if you do it, if you keep doing it too long, it no longer helps anymore? Uh, yes, kind of. Okay, good. What, what I want you to do then is do the whole body breathing as long as it helps, and then before you get to the point where it stops helping so much, go back to the sensations of the breath at the nose and keep doing the same thing there and, and until that loses its exclusive, the degree of exclusivity that you've got. Then go back to the whole body, experiencing a whole body with the breath. So um, staying in one mode, staying in either mode too long may be giving the opportunity for the as yet not fully trained uh, attention and the as yet not, uh, uh, not pacified thinking, discriminating mind to begin doing the same old thing that they always do. And by switching up on them, every time you sense that you're approaching the place where they might start doing their own thing again, you stay one step ahead of them. And you probably find that you can go longer in both states. And that's, of course, what you want. And both involve uh, awareness. And so I think, I think that that going back and forth is also going to help you. You'll notice your awareness becoming more metacognitive as a process of that. Because your intention here is to notice when you're beginning to lose whatever degree of exclusivity that you have been able to achieve. And that is a metacognitive function. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> That's... You feel like you have something to work with now? Yeah, definitely. I have something to work with now. Yeah, it's thank great. You. Absolutely wonderful. It's what, what I was hoping for. Okay. Um, Jeffrey Stevens. Jeffrey here. I don't, don't see Jeffrey. Oh, yes. Hello, yeah. Hi, hi, Jeffrey. Uh, I'm here, but I'm not on video. I, I see. Yes. That's a nice little uh, photo that you have of yourself. Thank you. It was inspired by you. They say imitation is the highest form of flattery. So. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so. Uh, says, uh, you ask if I'm familiar with Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn, um, what Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Sum Amaro call the sound of silence. Uh, it is an all-pervasive sound that some people can hear enough to use as meditation object. For me, it is a very easy object to locate and practice with, much better than the breath. In the later chapters of TMI, you mentioned something like this, and I'm curious if they are the same. Uh, my primary question is, can this be used as a meditation object in TMI all the way through the stages? And if so, how? And if not, why not? Okay, so first of all, um, people have mentioned this often enough that I really should 
uh, have made yourself more familiar with what Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Amaro are calling the sound of silence. My assumption, and this is reinforced by your description, is that indeed this is uh, a manifestation similar to the uh, mind-generated sound that does arise as a part of pacification of the senses. And there is a form of, of meditation that's uh, called Nada Yoga, N-A-D-A Yoga, which uses... That's exactly right. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there's also a, a form of meditation that I think is uh, unique to uh, some Sikh teachers. It is a Sikh lineage of, of light and sound meditation that use not only the sound, but also the illumination phenomenon that arises part of pacification of senses. And so I'm assuming that, uh, that all of these, uh, Sumedho and Amaro's and uh, the Nada Yogas and the, uh, and the uh, uh, I believe it's Kirpal saying anyway, the sound and light meditation, are probably all talking about the same phenomena. And <clears throat> It, you can use many different things as an object <coughs> in the development of stable attention or samadhi and um, the uh, development of uh, awareness or sati. Now, the other thing that we're trying to develop at the same time here is, the, is vipassana. And vipassana is when your attention is going, is, it, it means to see through or to see beyond. You're seeing beyond what you're used to seeing. You're seeing what's really there rather than the, the initial thing your mind wants to present, a representation based on what you're focusing your attention on. So... Um, I'll speak about the breath for a moment. If you were to meditate on your breath as breath, moving in and out, and nose and lungs and everything, you would not be focusing your attention on what's really there. Because there, when your eyes are closed and you're breathing, there is no nose arising in consciousness except from the mind itself. That's why we focus on the sensations of the breath, because that's what's really there, are the sensations of the breath. And when we begin, we can't help but have this conceptual overlay. Okay? And so the... To focus on what's actually there, the sensations, rather than some visualization of the breath cycle or some visualization of the movement of air or things like that, that's just looking at the mental representation. That's just looking at the mental model. And so that's why focusing on the sensations of the breath makes it a vipassana practice. Now, it is possible, and I have a student who is using the sound, he's doing the Nada Yoga practice. Huh. And 
is using it in the Mopassana mode. Because what he's doing is he's listening very carefully to what's actually there. Uh, he's not just hearing the sound. He's listening to any of the subtleties in the variation of the sound. He's mm -hmm. listening to the way the sound is uh, altered by the presence of an actual sound from some other source. He's, so it's more difficult, but he succeeds in using this as an insight practice. And so mm -hmm. if you can do that, then mm -hmm. that's great. If you can just, what you want to do is you want to get as close to the sensory edge as you can. Now, in this case, the sound that's arising is mind-generated. So mm -hmm. it takes a little more skill to approach that sensory edge of what's actually there. But you can do it. Now, I'm All thinking right. that when you, say, when you say sensory edge, you mean the moment before um, the third skanda arises and conceptualizes the experience. Um, I, I'm talking about before the second skanda arises. What, first of all, there is something that is being interpreted as sound. That is a perception, okay? Uh-huh. And, and so you're approaching that point where whatever that part of your mind is generating takes on the appearance of sound. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's mm -hmm. the sense you want to approach. And that will, you'll be at that edge when you, when you can identify subtle variations in the, in the pitch or the, the uh, loudness or any other quality of the sound. That's wonderful. Yes, that's so. The the way to use this as an object is to get as close from the get go. As soon, like I might switch over to it when Parikama Samadhi has begun to show itself in a session. I might mm -hmm. then switch over to the sound, and in order to use that appropriately, you're you're advising me to get as close as I can to the to the uh, to the sensation, the edge of sensation. Uh oh, <laughs> I think I lost you. Yeah, the connection's been a little bit spotty. It's not you, it's probably Chuladasa's connection. Oh, okay, thank you, a voice from, from the heavens. Sure, <laughs> chances are he'll be back. <laughs> okay, and hopefully he'll stay around. Indeed. Chiranasa, you're muted. Okay, yes. I, I Can you remember what you were saying when I my internet connection failed? Yeah, I was... So you, you told me that um, I'm... Tr so for me, I want to use this nada, this sound. Mm -hmm. um, usually, 
say I'm, I'm, I'm in a session and I'm easily, say at the third stage or the beginning of the fourth stage. Well, by that point, this sound is so loud that it almost, it takes effort to ignore it. And I've yeah. learned recently that a lot, of the, a lot of people don't ignore it. They just use it as an object. And just like your student who's using it as an object of insight, it easily transfers into that. So I wanted to give it a try and it's been very good so far, but I just, I really wanted to understand your take on it. And what I'm hearing yeah. you say is to direct my attention to the sensory edge. That's what I think you said. That's exactly what I said. And if I could, just a, a minor correction. Uh, there's been a, a long-standing misunderstanding. Vipassana does not mean insight. Okay, so it's not an insight. Oh, practice. okay. It's a vipassana. Oh, okay. Okay. Terrific. It, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's using attention in that vipassana way that in combination with mindfulness and stability of attention gives rise to, to insight. Okay, insight Thank is you for that. Awesome. Yeah. But anyway, yes, you're right. Now, okay. uh, like with the breath, you can follow the breath. You can connect. You can, you can become, uh, you can use your awareness and your attention simultaneously to recognize uh, the, what Buddha always treated as a starting point. When he was describing uh, meditation, he would say, when he breathes in a long breath, he knows he breathes in long. When he breathes in short, he knows he breathes in short, so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. this, this is at the level of following and connecting. And it is describing using attention in that insight mode, right? You're knowing what's mm -hmm. exactly, exactly what's there. You're not just seeing, oh yeah, that's the breath. Oh yeah, that's the breath. You're seeing that the pause between the in and the out breath is longer and shorter and things like that. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and now, with the so you need to use the you need to use the sound in a similar way, and that's that sensory edge. I think you got the message there. When okay. you get into stage five, have you tried stage five practices? Uh, the body scanning at all? I haven't tried the stage five practices that you have taught. I I will. I've certainly experienced that you know that that level of practice before, and mm -hmm. and. And I've done something very similar, where in order to, in order to boot up introspective awareness, I've just been aware of every little detail of arising and dissolving, like in an all-pervasive way. So it probably was an attempt to do the same thing that the body scan does. But I'll, I'll try the body scan. Well, when you're doing the body scan, the same principle applies, that what you're doing is you're looking at something that you've looked at many times before. For example, you're, you're focusing your attention on your hand and, you've paid, and you're looking for sensations that you have never seen before. And even if you don't find sensations that are related to the breath, you're going to be looking at the sensations that are there in a much more real way. So mm -hmm. once again, you're approaching that sensory edge. What is really being presented to consciousness? Get these preconceived notes. Let these concepts fall away. I want to see what's really happening. And what that will give rise to in stage six is the spontaneous appearance of the acquired sign, where 
if you're focusing on the breath, you're just going to see individual sensations arising and passing away. And there's going to be no concept of nose or air or in or, in or out or anything else associated with it. That's the acquired sign? That is the acquired sign, yes. That is oh, the acquired wow. sign. The rising, seeing the arising and passing away of one sensation at a time. Now there is something similar. You, you could, by that point, you'll probably find that you could switch to a number of different things and do that. You can do that with the nada sound as well. Because what will happen is if you've successfully practiced using your attention in this way, penetrating through any conceptualized expectations, what's going to happen is what was a continuous sound is going to break up into a series of individual sounds, each a little bit different than the other, that make up what you had seen before as mm -hmm. a fluctuation in intensity or pitch or whatever. You're going to mm -hmm. see that it's going to like become digitized, right? Wow. Uh huh. And so it's like you're hearing overtones at the same time, not sequentially. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay. So that will let you know that you're on track. So you can, you can use the sound, and it's no problem, as long as you know what your objective is, what you know the end is. What you want to arrive at is, is uh, uh, upon a samadhi, effortless stability of attention, which can become kanaka samadhi, where you can actually move attention around and investigate things. You mm -hmm. want the quality of your attention to be in the vipassana mode, the seeing through, the seeing into mode, and you want mm -hmm. to have very powerful metacognitive introspective awareness because information is being transferred back and forth between attention and awareness, and this is where awareness recognizes the anomalies and puts them together into a pattern that becomes the insight, aha. So make That's sure it's all there. Okay. Well, Chudasa, thank you so much, and happy Father's Day to you. Hey, and happy Father's Day to you and all of the other fathers who are present with us. <laughs> okay, I appreciate it. A million thank yous. Yeah. You're most welcome, most welcome. Let's see, uh, Dermot, is Dermot here with us today? Dermot, you are, yes, great, right. this is really good. I think we're gonna get through the questions of everybody that's here and probably save the rest for a follow-up and we can hope that people asking those questions are able to show up then. All right, so you ask, uh, you say, I'm currently doing stage four practice. At the last DPC meeting, someone asked about ADHD, and I believe you suggested his focus in stage four should be on introspective awareness and metacognitive introspective awareness, rather than just watching out to stop subtle distractions from becoming gross distractions. Uh, could, could I expand on this? Um, I found that lifelong ADHD has left me with awareness that seems to get immediately jumped on by attention. No deficit there. <laughs> At the retreat in April, I seemed to be able to be doing stage six with full body breath sensations before it would collapse back into forgetting and mind wandering. I think I had eliminated distractions by willpower, which clearly wasn't the way to go. 
Eve Smith suggested stepping back a bit from the breath, and this seems to have helped me start to see subtle distractions before they get gross. That's great. That is a good description. All right. Now, this to um, expand a little bit on what I said, uh, that um, uh, put the, uh, this, um, let's see, you say, uh, if you use the word focus in stage four, and I think I want to clarify and make sure that what you mean is emphasis, because that's what I meant. <laughs> okay. Yes. yes. So that's exactly right. I want you to put the emphasis on the awareness, and that is going to help you recognize distractions before they become gross distractions. It will improve somewhat the quality of your stability of attention, but what you're doing is you're letting go of that being the primary goal. You're, being, you're taking a much gentler and more forgiving and accepting, you know, okay, my mind just really isn't capable of doing this quite the way that it's described. So sometimes those are going to become gross distractions. Sometimes they're even going to bring about forgetting. But I'm, I just accept that that's going to happen. And if backing away a little bit from the intensity of focus helps to do that, then that's that's absolutely fine. Uh, if focusing in more closely helps to do that, that's absolutely fine. But all I'm suggesting is that we take some of the importance away from, uh, from developing samadhi. And you're going to end up, I found that people with ADHD are surprised the degree to which that their mind can become more stable. And you did have that experience that lasted for a while in stage six before it collapses. So really what you end up doing is you end up being able to develop the same quality of samadhi. It's just that you're not going to be able to sustain it to the same degree. And so you just accept that. It doesn't matter. Because um, in, for example, the Mahasi-style noting practice, they never develop the qualities of samadhi that, to the degree that we do. But at some point, the meditation object, it's the point where they begin to see the arising and passing away. And that's a function of this vipassana, of seeing into, as I was just describing. So that, just, that question I just answered in that description, it serves us really well here. So you look at that, and you can, you can practice using your attention in that manner, on the breath, in the body scan, wherever. It's just you're not worrying about how long you can do it for. So you're going to have that capacity. And when it, what happens in the Mahasi practice is they use the noting to help speed up the mind. When the mind gets fast enough to begin to notice the arising and passing away, the arising and passing away is so fascinating, you know, becomes like watching porn or something. Your attention stays on it, right? <laughs> the arising and passing away is so fascinating that your attention tends to lock in on it enough that 
it can give rise to insight. Now in stage seven, you're doing exactly what people are doing in that practice. Although with most people, it's more likely to give rise to insight into emptiness, but sometimes it gives rise to insight into impermanence the same way it does with the Mahasi practice. But my whole point is you can develop the requisite skills. You can play the same trick that Mahasi does, which is to develop the vipassana and develop the mindfulness to the point that the object of meditation becomes sufficiently fascinating that it compensates for the lack of samadhi. <clears throat> so when, you know, if I'm watching um, uh, the breath and I can sense the thoughts coming up and um, now, which I had not noticed before and I, and I don't necessarily even know the contents sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. but go back to the breath. Um, as you say, I, I, I haven't made the 10 minutes again. Uh, uh, so mm -hmm. you're saying not to worry about that. When would I then start to do other practice, um, go back to the uh, body scanning and the breath sensations in the body? Well, <clears throat> um, what you want to do is to keep in mind what the primary purpose is at each stage. So at stage five, the purpose of the body scanning is to push the mind to a higher level of, of, of power. I like to think of it as conscious power. So you're asking much more of the mind than you usually, than you have been doing up to then because you're asking the mind to maintain this powerful awareness while actually looking for something that it's never seen before. And so that is, that is the end result that you're after. And it's really independent of how long your attention can stay focused. So that you want to use the body scanning in the stage five mode until you have the consistent experience of your mind being clearer, sharper, more alert, your, your uh, awareness being more powerful, um, your attention being more penetrating, maybe you, no matter whether you've discerned sensations that change with the breath or not, you're discerning the sensations that are there much more clearly than before. You've achieved the goal. Then you go to stage six, and our goal there is to reduce the amount of rapid fluctuations of attention and to make attention more stable. So if you can make it more stable for one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, you're accomplishing the goal. And so uh, in terms of when to move on, I would say when you, when you get to the place <clears throat> where you can consistently, at every sit, have intervals of stability associated with metacognitive introspective awareness that last uh, whatever turns out to be, you know, your kind of best at that level, whether it's, you know, 10 minutes at a time, five minutes at a time, whatever it is, then you can go ahead and uh, uh, start doing the practices of stage five. And uh, 
see if you can't bring yourself to a greater degree of effortless stability. So that means that your intervals of stability may only be 10 minutes long or may only be five minutes long, but they actually become effortless. And when you lose it, let's say you forget, when you come back, you're bang, you're back in there and you can just effortlessly sustain it. Now you're in stage eight. So you're almost describing there's a kind of working on about three or four stages at the same time. Yes, exactly. I find um, when I'm focusing on the stage four practice, I'm very aware of the breath sensations and tips of my ears uh, or yeah. my hands. Yeah. Uh, they're just there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, keep, I, I realized that if I try to, to be, become aware of too much of my body, it would tend to collapse everything. So I yeah. just let yeah. it do it. Yeah, you the, keep in mind the, the difference between the end and the means. If you can hold the whole body and consciousness at once, that's great. But if you achieve the end, the, the purpose, if you can sustain a higher level, if uh, not only a higher level of conscious power, but a continuously, gradually increasing level of conscious power throughout the sit, you've achieved the goal of that practice. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much. You're most welcome. And thank you all for coming here today and uh, for your questions. And uh, I guess, uh, Ted, we'll have to schedule a follow-up. Uh, uh, oh, just a quick question before I go. Those of you who are here, this is a weekend. And uh, are you here primarily because it's a weekend, or would you have been here if it had been a weekday? So Michelle, Michelle and Andy are kind of saying that, that okay, but it sounds like the majority of you would have been here if it was on a weekday too, so, okay. Yeah, I, I can, I'm, I'm pretty busy uh, working in the week. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm a doctor, a lung doctor. So uh, most of the time during the weekdays, it's, it's pretty much impossible for me to, to make it. Um, mm -hmm. The weekends, I have a shot. Okay. Yes. All right. Same here. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. I'm going to ask the similar question the next time we do one on a weekday, and uh, it will just help us. I mean, we're going to have to try to change times regularly for people in different time zones, for people with different work requirements, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I guess everybody except those people who have complete control over their time is, is going to have to sometimes not be able to attend. Well, Anyway, thank you very much once again uh, for everything, for your support on Patreon, for your joining me today, and for your interest in practicing PMI. And thank you for all of those things. So have a wonderful time until I see you again. Thank you. Thank you.